Hello and welcome to the FinTech Australia podcast. I'm Dexter Cousins, and in today's show, we're going to be talking about FinTech in business banking and lending. We've got a stellar lineup of interviews, including Prosper, Judo, Trade Ledger, and Button. And I'm joined in the studio, or should I say, on the northern beaches of Sydney, right next to the Pacific Ocean, by Ryan Edwards Pritchard. He's from, well, it's a big secret where he's from, but hopefully he might share a little bit more with us in the show. But before we do get into today's show, a big shout out to our partners, FinTech Australia. They're a member-driven organization building an ecosystem of Australian FinTech making an impact on the global economy. We share their mission to build a strong FinTech community, foster connections, and support innovation. If you're not a member, go to fintechaustralia.org.au forward slash join dash now. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's awesome to be here. I have to say, being a, a, a long-time listener, all 12 months, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's pretty cool to be able to actually sit across and, yeah, talk all things FinTech today. So clearly you're not an Aussie Ryan. What brings you to these shores? Well, like many good stories. Uh, mine actually started with, uh, with a friend's wedding actually coming over here the end of last year. Um, to, to kind of give some background and context, uh, prior to coming over uh, the last uh, decade or so, for me, it was all spent in software consulting, financial services. Um, specifically, the last four years that are relevant to this show in particular uh, were actually spent uh, running as the managing director, uh, a company called Funding Options, uh, which is a one-stop shop for all things business finance. Uh, the equivalent to over here is probably Valiant, which I'm sure you guys probably know uh, more than well. Um, I had yeah an incredible journey uh seeing the company go from five to 100 people uh, as is the case when you go through that growth well wore every single hat going across engineering product design uh commercial and operations uh, i think towards the end my role was really quite focused on building partnerships specifically with uh, the incumbent banks um, and helping them uh, better serve their small business customers uh, so the likes of ING, Starling Bank, Metro, TSB in particular, uh, we were providing them with a, uh, a marketplace lending solution, which meant uh, if they couldn't fund their customers, we would then seamlessly uh, connect them to an alternative finance lender. Uh, so yeah, so I was doing that. Um, I had planned to go back to the UK uh, at the beginning of the year, then obviously the, the pandemic happened. Uh, and that really kind of forced me to spend a bit more time thinking about what was to come next. And having lived through open banking going live beginning of 2018 and being part of one of the first teams to commercialize its use, I knew firsthand the journey that you guys were about to go on. Uh, and I could see the next three to five years ahead what that would mean. And it just it was just too good an opportunity to miss. Uh, from a personal perspective, I've always had ambitions to be over in Australia. So anybody that knows me from my funding options days uh, would have probably known that I, I long held a desire to come to this part of the world. I think it's incredible. Uh, and then since really getting here, I met with obviously yourself earlier in the year, back in January to get a lay of the land. Uh, and then I've been really fortunate just to meet with other people and and yeah, the likes, obviously you've got some incredible founders and entrepreneurs here. Uh, the likes of Alex over at Valiant, 
Bo over at Prosper, Nick over at Afterpay. Uh, and they've really blown me away in terms of what they're doing uh, and what they've achieved. And then on top of that, it's been really encouraging to see the activity from the VCs. So the likes of Airtree, Blackbird, uh, Square Peg, just how progressive they've been um, in terms of this space and how successful. So since um, since January, I've, I've, I've been working on a new project, I spent the last eight months head down, uh, really trying to get my head around a new market. You know, I'm, I'm brand, brand new to this space. Um, so the best thing I could do is go out there, um, perhaps virtually pound the streets. Yeah. <laughs> There's no going yeah. out there pressing the flesh. So it's 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 been lots of virtual coffees. It's It's been lots of um, quantitative, qualitative research, trying to understand the, the dynamics of the market. And then obviously seeing how the uh, pandemic played out, um, you know, coming into March and April, uh, it was clear that it just wasn't going to be the time to go out there um, with something you knew. Um, and the best thing to do would be to see how the dust settled and take a very clear position then on, on what it was uh, would be building. Uh, and then really since uh, since June, in fact, I was fortunate enough that you introduced me to uh, Ant and uh, bead over at Antler, which is a, a, a generator, so yep. kind of pre-accelerator as such. And um, so thank you. And uh, yeah, I applied to that. There was, I think, 1,400 or so applicants. Uh, they, they they pick out a, a group of entrepreneurs to come on and they run a three-month program. Uh, and it's, it's well-structured. Uh, it's, for me, personally speaking, being brand new to this place, uh, it's fantastic to get other people around me to help give a lay of the land. Uh, both in terms of uh, the funding aspects, in terms of potential customers, partnerships, regulations, all of that. So they've been uh, a great help in that way. So hopefully... You're going to be giving me an exclusive. <laughs> hey? right, hopefully I'll be back in the show in a couple of months. Mate, don't, go sn- don't go sniding off to your mates at Fintech Insider to give their rent, please. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> but of course, I would love to do that. It'd be great. Great. Well, we're going to uh, talk now a little bit about a business that you know well. We've got an interview with Paul Carmichael, who's the Asia-Pacific um, Sales Director for Trade Ledger. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dexter. You're welcome. Um, great to have you here. Now, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, Paul, and Trade Ledger? Yeah, we'd, we'd love to. So I've been in lending technology for about eight years now. Um, and over that time, I've seen significant changes um, in our industry, um, been in banks across Europe, Asia, and Australia. And um, all of these banks of all shapes and sizes, they all struggle with um, a lot of the same issues, um, inefficient processes and high costs. And as we move from, or as the world moves from partial digitization into full digitization, um, it's becoming you know, ever more apparent. Um, so banking and the technology landscape has been pretty slow to to respond to these changes, um, which is why I recently actually decided to take um, a new role at Trade Ledger to lead the charge into open finance and data-driven lending. Um, we're building on the momentum um, of open banking. It's been a pretty good enabler for our business um, across Europe, um, and we believe that it can be a similar enabler for our business um, across Asia. But we believe that the type of data that you can actually get from open banking didn't actually go far enough by supplementing that and augmenting that with additional data sets which live around the customer and around the bank, we can bring that data in and use it to um, create new products um, and new ways of assessing the credit worthiness um, of an organization. 
Fantastic. So what, what's the actual size of this problem that you're addressing? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty big. Um, the, 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 people talk about the um, credit gap as being anything from 1.5 to $4.5 trillion. And that is basically the, the shortfall of credit that SMEs need to, to thrive and grow. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty big issue. So, Paul, we're in the midst of one of the biggest economic challenges we're, we're going to face in our lifetimes with um, the COVID recovery. How can Trade Ledger support those businesses um, and, and be part of the recovery? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question, um, Dexter. Um, so um, the economic conditions for um, SMEs have been deteriorating for, for quite some time. Um, even before COVID, SMEs have been getting a pretty raw deal. Um, the experience of actually applying for credit, um, you know, if you're a small business owner um, or a CFO is actually, um, it's not a very enjoyable experience. Um, you know, spending up to 30, 40 hours of applying for credit is, um, you know, it's time consuming. But then waiting a long, anxious period of time, um, you know, for the for the decision to be made. And then it can take up to 90 to 120 days to actually wow. to actually get the funds. And then obviously, you know, it's no surprise that 57% of those can be declined um, or abandoned. So where Trade Ledger is kind of coming in is we want to make sure that, you know, we can get that decision made much faster and we can get the cash out of the door um, to the businesses that need it um, pretty quickly. Um, but also, you know, going back to the, the credit gap, you know, our kind of position on this is that, you know, this has wider implications and it's painful for the SMEs, but it also creates a wider issue um, for society as well. And, and our challenge is how do we get that credit to flow where it's needed, yeah. but also provide the banks with the tools that they need to be able to access that credit gap as a potential opportunity. And so, so where do you sit? Are you enabling the banks to make faster credit decisions or are you going out to be uh, a lender yourself? No. So we've always, um, you know, we're, um, we're a tech fin, not a, uh, not a fintech. So, um, our basically, um, what we do is, um, develop enterprise grade lending as a service platform that our clients can take as a white label, implement their own, um, lending policies and risk tolerances on and get that out to, to market pretty quickly. So we would basically manage the full process from receiving, um, a new loan inquiry and even from a direct customer channel, um, an embedded customer channel, um, a broker or an introducer, going through the different stages of the underwriting process to booking it to a, to a, to a booking engine or to a, to a core banking system. Fantastic. Now, I want to talk about the, some of the origins of Trade Ledger. Um, it's a business that's very familiar to myself, as, as you know, Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, for our listeners, and we've got listeners all over the world, can you tell us a little bit more about the back history of, of Trade Ledger and how it came about? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the business was actually started here in Sydney um, by two um, ex-SAP um, technologists. Um, you'll be familiar with with Matt and Martin. Um, Matt is our, our CTO. Um, you know, he comes across as a, a German professor. He's very knowledgeable um, in the space of business information systems and was really passionate about taking enterprise technology principles and applying them to the to the lending space. Um, Martin, our CEO, was was also um, at SAP, um, but he was also running um, trade um, platforms um, for SAP. Um, and to be honest, wasn't very impressed with the wider ecosystem um, of different platforms out there. And basically came up with the idea that over a few beers in the pub, that there's got to be a better way 
um, of extracting information from the wide range of data sources that an organization has into the bank so they can make more informed credit decisions. I think 95% of fintechs came, you know, uh, were born in a pub. <laughs> it, would, it wouldn't surprise me. That, yeah. that part of the story always gets a bit hazy and, and kind of changes from time to time. <laughs> but yeah, it, 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 wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, and I kind, of mentioned, I kind of mentioned earlier about open banking. You know, that's been a, a huge driver of, of, of the business um, in Europe. And as a result of that momentum that we were getting there, Martin actually decided to move over to the UK to um, lend his weight and, and put some weight behind some of the, the, the large-scale projects that we're, we're running there. But, um, you know, obviously with the, the recent changes to open banking in Australia, we believe that, you know, this market's going to grow, um, you know, pretty quickly as well. And, um, you know, we kind of feel that we're in the, the hyper growth phase now. And we should be looking to expand um, pretty rapidly. Great. So in, in terms of, I guess, you know, where you see the solution um, working, or have you got particular clients in mind that you, you're working with and you're going after? Yeah, absolutely. Our, our customers typically fall into two main buckets at the moment. Um, we're engaged with large global trading banks um, and large national banks. Um, you know, these customers here see us as a, a product innovation platform, um, which they can create brand new data-driven and open um, finance um, products, which break free from the traditional kind of mold of products that they're used to. Um, and then we also work with another group of customers, um, namely, you know, challenger banks, um, startups, alternative finance providers. And for these customers, we, we're still selling that um, enterprise platform. But what we've done is we've built an accelerated start position onto that, which we call the turnkey version, which um, has best practice workflow built into the built into the platform, as well as some integrations to kind of get you up and running. And then we believe that we can get our customers up and running in about six to eight weeks and, and writing links. And you've you've worked for I guess some you know, uh, real heavyweights in the the cloud banking space, um, Avoca here in Australia, Encino. Um, what what's your your kind of sense of you know trade ledger and and the journey that they're on? Um, do you, do you see kind of parallels at all with those businesses? Yeah, uh, I, I I do. Um, you know, I think we've um, you know we've got a we're on a um, a very good growth trajectory at the moment. Um, and if we keep that up, then um, I believe we might actually be able to move faster um, than many of those organisations. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I, I generally think if if we keep on um, if we keep on going the way that we're going, um, we will be a category leader within the lending as a service space probably in the next one to two years, and we'll get there by pushing more volume, more lending volume through our platform um, than anyone else. And I think with some of the the partnerships that we we have in place at the moment, um, we should be able to get there pretty quickly. Brilliant. And uh, have you got any exciting news that you can share with us, Paul? Um, we've got some. We've got we've we've got a lot of news which I I, I wish I could actually make um, which I can make public. Um, we've got some very large projects which I've alluded to that we're running out of the UK at the moment. Um, and in the next kind of six months, we should be able to talk um, a bit more openly about that. But outside of customers, we we also um, are in the process of finalising some pretty exciting partnerships that are, are really going to help the the business scale. So it would be good to maybe check in again with you in, in Absolutely. six months and. And, and tell you a bit more about that because um, you know I'm really excited to to kind of get this out there into the market, um, and also the other the other good news for us as well. And I, I want to be sensitive to to, to to most of your listeners because it is pretty tough for um, a lot of people out there in the current market conditions. But 
um, we've actually expanded um, over COVID. So we feel quite lucky in that sense. We we managed to secure um, the funding that we needed to give us enough runway Fantastic. Um, for a considerable amount of time, literally just before COVID hit. So we've just doubled down on, on engineering. Um, we're going to be um, expanding um, the sales and marketing footprint, um, you know, across, um, you know, across Australia and across Europe. Um, and we're also looking for a, for a new home as well. We've we've outgrown our current office space. Uh, we're in the processes of trying to find somewhere big enough to, to socially distance. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it, it it's all go here. Brilliant. Well, Paul, where can people go and find out more about Trade Ledger? Um, our, our website, our website is probably the best place to go, um, and also LinkedIn. We've got a page there which you can follow. Um, the updates there are, are, are pretty good. Right. Uh, we've got quite a few listeners who are execs in banks if they're interested in uh, working with Trade Ledger and, and um, potentially um, using you as a solution. What's the best way for people to contact you? Um, the best way to get in contact with me is probably to head towards the website, um, lodge an inquiry or reach out to me on LinkedIn. Great. Paul, it's been great to have you on the show and fantastic to hear another Aussie um, success story in fintech. Brilliant. Thanks for having me on, Dexter. Well, that was Paul Carmichael from Trade Ledger. Interesting to hear him say that they've got some major projects in the UK, Ryan. There was some big announcements this week as well in the UK in the business fintech space. Um, what's your take on on what's happening right now? Yes, it's incredibly exciting time to see the you know the business banking space finally come alight. You know. It, it's been the poor cousin of the consumer side, uh, investment banking, wealth uh, management, all the different areas. And finally, uh, the last couple of years, SME has been getting uh, a lot of attention. Uh, Trade Ledger in particular, um, fantastic business. No Martin, no Roger. Shout out to him back home. Um, and yeah, they're... they're they're on a great uh, journey. You can see that they've got some exciting news. I've got no doubt with partnerships with some of the big banks. Hopefully, they'll be announcing in the near future. Uh, looking at their mission, you know, it's clear that there is a need to unlock data uh, from cloud accounting platforms, uh, from transactional bank accounts, from CRM software. If lenders are to actually move from those simple uh, systems of record to creating these systems of intelligence where they can then pull together those disparate data sources to get a, an actual holistic picture. Yeah, well, we're, we're kind of going to go from one uh, kind of extreme to the other. So Paul was talking about Trade Ledger and being a technology solution. We've now got Alex Twig from Judo. They've taken a very different approach to enable technology really to... Um, I guess, be able to focus more on the relationship banking side. So Judo, I don't know if you know much about them, Ryan, but I'd say kind of Oak North would be a very kind Mate. of comparable business. I, uh, I tell you what, one of the first things I actually did when I landed here and I realized I was going to be staying, I actually read Breaking Banks from Joseph Healy, which you know, for anybody perhaps isn't the, the, the page turner that they'd expect while sitting on the beach. However, I had my Kindle and that was a fantastic read and anybody who is looking or interested in the australian banking uh industry should pick up that book alex welcome to the show thanks dexter great to be here mate it's great to have you here and i know we've um talked about doing this for quite some time 
We have. It's been uh, it's been on and off for uh, a good uh, a good year now. I reckon. Yeah, it has. It has finally got it sorted out. Absolutely. You were co- your co-founder at Judo. Could you tell us a little bit more about the business and how you got started? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, the whole idea for Judo uh, came about four years ago. Um, a few colleagues um, saw what was going on in uh, in the UK, or had been going on in the UK with. Um, new banking license that had been issued there and the success of the, the challenger banks as they've known for like uh, Oak North uh, in the SME space. And we had an inkling that um, a similar thing would happen with uh, with APRA here in Australia. Um, and so we uh, set out on a mission to try and um, you know, sort of uh, take that advantage of that and create a, an SME-focused uh, lending business originally uh, that would... Um, focus very much on uh, how SME banking used to be done and how we think it should be done. Um, so we'd seen in Australia that the, and in fact around the world, the way that um, SME banking had been industrialised by the large the large banks and everything centralised, uh, the um, you know credit making capabilities being taken away from the frontline bankers, uh, consequently, the frontline bankers had been de-skilled. Um, and uh, the customers, however, though, the SME customers out there were still looking for, you know, real help, guidance and advice to, to really help them drive their business forward from trusted and experienced advisors that, you know, could lend against the quality of the business, not just against the quality of the security, which is the way that... Um, uh, most of the big banks now currently lend. You know, they'll they'll ask you as a small business owner how much property you own and uh, how much um, uh, how much equity you have in your home, and and they'll lend you seventy percent of that. And that's really the only decision making criteria that, that applies. Mm. Um, and where Judo, you know, wants to look at the quality of the management team, the quality of the cash flow, you know, the the, the whole uh, every aspect of the business, and actually make a real um, a real judgment-based lending decision um, that you know will probably uh, would have got through the uh, the lending process of the bank, uh, you know the big banks uh, 10, 15 years ago, but we'll get a simple no today because the security is not there. What I really love about the judo model, it, it reminds me a lot of what I've seen kind of impact the recruitment industry over the last twenty years is, um, you know, this move with technology has been to automate a lot of the process and to feel that that was actually the innovation and that was actually technology enabling us. What it's probably done is just made, you know, a bad process amplified a hundred times worse. And the, the judo model is, you know, similar to what we've done in our business, use technology to bring us closer to the customer where we recognize that, that level of complexity you've talked about, it's very hard to not have a human involved who has strong subject matter expertise to understand it. Can you tell us a little bit more about how tech or the tech bit plays into judo as a fintech? Yeah, of course. I mean, so, uh, I mean, I, I talked about the sort of the business model for judo, but, you know, judo has probably got more tech than, than you can shake a stick at, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, we set out um, to make a very high-touch, high-tech business. Um, 
which, and what I mean by that is um, we wanted to make all of the technology effectively invisible, both to the end customer, but also to um, the banker, um, who's probably the, the biggest user of the technology. Um, but we wanted to try and make them really um, able to service their, their customer and serve their customer completely without having to rely on, you know, central functions and everything else. So we wanted to, you know, it's a bit of a stretch, you know, and it's still still a bit of a stretch today. But, you know, the goal was that a banker should be able to go out to a, a customer's factory, um, wander the store, wander the floor, um, look at the books, look at the stock, um, agree, a, agree a loan with a, with a customer um, and complete all the details uh, and send the documents to the customer on their iPhone from the car park before they leave the premises. Um, now, that was the sort of original vision um, so that, you know, which is, which is a million miles away, light years away from the sort of current technology experience that uh, most bankers have in, in the big four organisations. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure how valid this stat is, but one of our... One of our bankers came from one of the big four banks, and you know, to said to said to us that to achieve the same result uh, that they achieved at Judah, they had twenty seven different systems to either log into or data <laughs> into. Um, you know, and we tried to keep it down to one. <laughs> um, and you know, the one lesson I've learned from uh, doing this a few times from my past experience of, you know, this is Judo was my third new bank. Um, what I learned from the first two was that, you know, you only get one blank sheet of paper from either a business model or a technology perspective. And it's the most valuable thing you have. Um, and you want to try and build a bank for the next 20 years, not the last 20 yeah. years. Um, and that's really key. Um, and you know, when we, four years ago, um, you know, you looked at the technology landscape and what was available to you. And, you know, I go back right the way back, you know, 20 years ago when when I was involved in helping um, to, to launch Egg Bank in the UK, um, you know, we were we were dealing with, with 56K modems. Yeah. You know, there was no mobile, there was no broadband to that door, you know, there was, there was no NBN. Um, no TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> you know ebay was a was a was a new thing <laughs> back then um anyway but and what was but the, but the the real point of this is when you think about the proper the customer proposition that's not really changed from you know the conversations we were having 20 years ago about how we needed to change banking um, uh, to create a, you know, a really compelling custom proposition. Um, but the technology has. Um, so when we came to build Ubank sort of 10 years ago, um, the customer proposition was rel relatively the same again, but the technology had caught up. Um, and we were able to, you know, build a really compelling digital-only uh, banking proposition that really resonated and the tech really worked and you know that was great uh when moved forward another 10 years to judo um the technology had actually gone past the proposition mm. 
you know, and it opened up avenues that we never dreamt possible before, you know. Um, you know, from a judo perspective, we we set out to build an entirely cloud native, born in the cloud bank, you know, which is, you know, which is, it still is today, I think, the, the only and the first fully operational uh, born in the cloud bank in the world. You know, when we start looked at the technology, we wanted to, from a judo perspective, we wanted to make sure that we started with the boring stuff. So we we started with the network. We how do you how do you secure um, an internet accessed only internet access bank in the world of cloud? Um, so we we looked at the work that Google had done with um, with Beyond Corp and Zero Trust Networking, and I think even today, Judo is the only bank in the world that is entirely operates on the Zero Trust Network. Then we looked at identity and access. You know, how does um, how do you really identify in a cloud world that Alex is Alex when he's coming to you from anywhere in the world on any device? Um, you know, we looked at, uh, you know, uh, the Microsoft um, identity and access management platforms. And again, I think we're the first only bank in the world to have implemented um, Active Directory B2B and B2C um, as a single sign-on for all customers and all bank users on every single system that we have. Um, you know, and that was that's actually been quite a, a, a revelation to me from a from a security perspective because, um, you know, if you, you work in any big bank, you know, you're changing passwords every every three weeks. You know, you've got 17 of them that you need to do and all this stuff. We we actually have got the reverse problem now, which is people forget their passwords because they don't actually need to ever use them anymore because you know the um, you know, the, the, the uh, system recognises the device they're on, recognises their keystrokes, recognises the, um, you know, the, the, the Wi-Fi network that they've come in through and actually makes a risk-based decision as to who this person is. That's a um, bit like me with PIN numbers. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's right. Um, and, and it goes on and on from there, right? And so, you know, uh, you know, as, and as a, you know, the way I always describe it is... Um, we tried to create a completely software as a service bank. Um, you know, so Judo doesn't own a single server. Uh, and the, the most interesting thing in the current um, world is it doesn't employ a single developer either. Wow. Um, yeah. Now that's really something different, and people sort of always take a step back when I say that. But you know, well, what about all the you know the DevOps and you know how are you going to do all your scrums and all the bits and pieces? And we say, well, look. Um, we're a bank, um, you know, our proposition is about being bankers. Um, it's not about being technologists. Um, what it, it's not about, sorry, it's, it is about being technologists, but it's not about running a dev shop. Yeah. Um, what we do is we take, you know, if there's, um, 50 plus, uh, platforms that we've taken, um, integrated, um, uh, to build Judo. Um, but we let the owners of those platforms run and maintain them. We let the owners of those, those platforms enhance them. Um, you know, why am I going to go and uh, think I can build a better um, a better team maintaining a core banking system than the core banking system owner can? Right? Um, uh, you know, I'm certainly not going to do it at a lower cost point, uh, and I'm certainly not going to be able to spend the money that. Uh, Google or Microsoft or Amazon can spend on security. I, I think if you 
you know, if even if you added up all the money that, that all of the big banks in Australia spent on security every year, it still would be dwarfed by any one of those uh, those other pl big players. So, you know, it's about um, really trying to remember what your business is, what you're re really good at, or what you should be really good at, and making sure that you can you can um, focus on that and you know remove cost out of the organisation every other way. Yeah, no, it's kind of been quite timely, I guess. We, we've seen with COVID, um, if you look at the US, I think there's been some real challenges there around the SME lending space and getting um, loans out to small businesses fast. We've seen the same challenge yeah. in the UK as well. Um, it looks, you know, from what we've seen so far in Australia, as if the, the government and the fintech industry have been working really closely together in order to... I guess, get capital into the hands of the small businesses that need them most. What do you think has been, I guess, you know, the kind of secret to judo working so closely with, with the government? And, you know, you've had a, you know, raised more capital even during COVID. What is it that you think is, is kind of got everybody um, so on board with the judo story? Uh, well, I think it's really simple. We, we focus on being bankers um and you know focus on serving sme customers and we focus on making sure that uh, we look at the you know the as i said at the beginning you know the the quality of the business not the quality of the security and you know it, it, there isn't a person in government or industry or even banking if i'm honest that when you talk to them about this they don't go yeah that's right that's exactly what you need to do um and, you know, it, it's really, really, um, you know, a simple equation when you start to tell the judo story to people that have had any involvement in, in SME lending or banking for the last 20 years, they go, yeah, that's exactly what you need to do. Um, and so everybody jumps on the jumps on and, 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 and is really has been phenomenally uh, supportive as us through this process. Um, and, and, you know, it's quite interesting from a technology lens. I mean, um, when COVID hit, you know, and everybody was having to work from home and, you know, I was seeing all of these articles about all of these CIOs running around and installing thousands of licenses of software and pumping out new laptops and all this, and, you know, pumping um, their chest about how great they've transformed their business yeah. to be an entirely remote working thing. Um, and, I, and I was sitting there, I'm thinking, I'm not sure I can write a note that says I did absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I didn't because the whole business had been set up to run that way from day one. Mm. Um, you know, we didn't, you know, absolutely everybody worked from, you know, overnight everybody worked from home in exactly the same way they'd been working from home and in the office and in the airport and in the, in the, on the train as they've been doing for the last three years. Um, and this is why, and this is the, the whole message about that blank sheet of paper. If you design with that in mind, design with the, you know, that end state in mind, um, you can actually get this stuff right. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it, it, it meant that from a judo perspective, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't miss a beat. Um, you know, we could be out there, you know, you know, while we were hearing, we were hearing horror stories of, you know, customers sitting on, uh on call center queues for you know tens of hours yeah. waiting to get to get um you know um 
you know, our bankers were, you know, we'd, we'd spoke where our bankers were talking to customers every day, exactly the same as they were the day before. Um, you know, and you know, it was a, we, we, att- we attracted an awful lot of business through that period. Well, we still are. So now you've built your, your third digital bank, Alex, what's, uh, what's next for you? Oh, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a serial builder of things and, you know, I love technology and, and finding out new stuff. So, um, I'm taking a, uh, uh, I'm stepping away from sort of, I'd rather I've stepped down as the, the, the judo CIO, um, still co-founder, still advisor. Um, but I'm now actually helping other fintechs and startups to, uh, to hopefully take the, uh, the message out to them and the way they can do things differently and, you know, starting from that, uh, you know, that first principles design, um, uh, and, you know, and trying to uh, work with a few more boards and, and really see if we can't take this message to, uh, to to corporate Australia and the world about the way they can really transform their businesses. and, and But to do it, they've got to focus on the first principles of their business and focus on their customers. Um, and then the technology will look after itself. Well, really interesting to hear from Alex there on the evolution of technology, which I, I guess has been one of the reasons for, for Judo's success. But what, what do you think is the kind of fundamentals behind the, the Judo model and how successful it's been, Ryan? The thing about Judo, in terms of where they've done incredibly well, is by focusing on a underserved niche, you know, creditworthy part of the market. And typically that is looking at those scale-up businesses that have been overlooked and underserved for decades. This isn't something which is just in Australia. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is a problem that is in the UK, it's in North America, it is just rife everywhere. Um, but focusing on that, uh, providing a better borrowing experience for that missing middle. Um, that seems to be it. My perspective is that we'll, as a whole, we'll actually see a shift take place in terms of different approaches to commercial lending going forward. And obviously, Judo's got uh, a very different approach, which is positive. What's clear is that the backward looking view just doesn't work. Taking a sector or even a subsector view of businesses doesn't work. Uh, every business has different challenges. You need to look at it at an incredibly granular and personalized level when it comes to setting uh, credit limits at an individual basis. And you know, that hands-on approach uh, works for Judo. Clearly, incumbents are shackled with legacy infrastructure, uh, operating rules that weigh them down, which are incredibly and economical when you actually look at it in terms of how they can actually serve SMEs. On top of that, businesses born into this growing digital economy are unfortunately asset light, IP heavy, uh, and banks aren't able to lend against these intangible assets. So we're going to see more and more of this come forward, I believe, over the next couple of years. Well, we're going to have a chat now with um, Rail Ross from Button, and they've really developed, I guess, a platform which um, talks to another segment of the market, which I think is very much this segment that you've talked about. Smaller businesses that are really underserved, um, that need decisions fast. Button was founded uh, off the back of transactional funding approximately two years ago. 
as you would uh, know, Dexter, that the the days of sort of pounding the footpath and knocking on doors to get origination and distribution and, and new clients and new business, you know, those days are well and truly over. So we sort of off the back of our existing business, we developed and created Button. I'm one of the co-founders uh, with uh, another partner of mine, Walter Rappaport. And what we've basically done around Button is to create agnostic technology that overlays any third-party platform to provide an instant suite of funding products. And within 15 seconds, you'll be funded. And within two minutes, you'll be signed up. So how, how do you get to, um, to come to a decision that fast? We're one of Australia's largest, not Australia's largest transactional funder in this space. We've been doing it for approximately five years. We made some key acquisitions a couple of years ago, including uh, Bendigo and Adelaide Banks, one of their factoring books. So that really sort of gave us the gravitas in the market. And sort of five years later and, you know, over half a billion dollars of funding, we've sort of been able to, I guess, capture the transactional funding suite of products and understand what works, what doesn't work, what are the key, you know, problems you're going to have, what are the key outliers, what are the key risks, et cetera, et cetera. And we've taken this particular transactional funding piece and built a fully digitized end-to-end technology that can plug into any third-party platform and any system, totally agnostic anywhere in the world. So are you actually a global business then or are you just focusing on Australia? We've, we're starting to actually, you know, we're, we're still obviously in our infancy for, for Button, um, but we're starting to get inquiries from Europe, from America. Um, like I said, we, we believe that technology is revolutionary. Uh, we believe that no one's really um, doing it in this space, especially in the SME B2B space. We don't look at consumer. We're not interested in, in consumer lending. We only focus on, on the SME and the B2B space. And I guess the, the beauty of our product is that we can hit both sides of the coin. So whether it's factoring, whether it's supply chain, whether, whether it's cash flow business lending, um, it's all incorporated into the same one-click, one one-stop shop, which is a plug-and-play solution. Rayleigh, you talked about getting the business off the ground. Are you guys bootstrapped or have you got investors? Yeah, look, we're in a very unique position, Dexter. I have to tell you that um, sort of five years ago, myself and Walter, you know, we started in a small suburban office um, in Melbourne. And uh, sort of five years later, you know, going on about 20 staff and whatnot. Um, but we've managed to still keep it internal. There's only the two partners, myself and Walter, we haven't taken any external investment. Um, obviously, we run a, a lending business, so we have you know borrowed for, for debt to, to obviously re-lend re and on-lend. But from an equity point of view and from a capital stack point of view, it's just myself and Walter. So, you know, my sort of my my insight and my advice to the the other guys out there, you know, they always try to sort of get it off the ground and after sort of stage one or stage two when they've you know they're really trying to push it forward they'll just go straight and run at the markets and try and raise capital and raise equity here and there and dilute themselves right off the bat and we're always big advocates of, of the opposite and we say you know we want to keep it internal and we don't need to be the biggest and the best in the first one year two years three years we just want to make sure that we're running a good business and if you run a good business and a smart business everything else will follow 
you, you get you get invited on the fintech australia podcast show or and then that's it life changes <laughs> well yeah <laughs> well uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you next week so <laughs> yeah mate yeah just remember me yeah when uh, that big offer comes in <laughs> yeah. look we've, we've got some we've got some major announcements oh great sort of over the next two months and you know, obviously, we'll, we'll we'll give you a, a nice heads up and a, and a nice exclusive. Yeah, that would well, be mate. great. You know, yep. we're we're really excited about you know what the future brings, and um, you know, Button is really you know pushing ahead and steaming ahead, and the feedback we've got, you know, the the technology is revolutionary, and mm. the partners are excited, and you know our you know our sort of go to market strategies is, yeah. is great and working well. So we're we're very confident, and very happy with that yeah. as well. We've we've seen I, I guess you know some huge success stories here in Oz, Judo, Prosper. Um, there's you know it, uh, Mula, um, yourselves. You know it's kind of it's it's really you know it's it's reassuring to see that um, you know the this space that's been so unloved. And as a business owner myself, um, you know the frustrations mm. that I've faced in the last four years in particular. That they're all now. It it seems like it's the perfect storm now, and it's all of a sudden we've got so many options out there. What do you think has uh, has kind of caused that? Yeah, I'll tell you. Look, we, we've always had a strong feeling internally, myself and my partner, that we need to stick to the knitting, and we need mm. to stick to our niche. And you know, like last year, you know, we we presented at Intersect on a, on the on the stage, and we were with sort of the afterpays of the world and some of the other partners and one of the topics that came up was sort of your niche and, and what you're good at and what you stick to and it was quite you know refreshing to see sort of the afterpays of the world saying you know we're not interested in sort of going into b2b you know we're strong in consumer and that's what we're what that's what yeah. our is sort of what we're sticking to at least in the short term and we've always said from our point of view that we're very strong in b2b not you know b2c yeah and that's what we're going to stick to. So I think why there's a lot of players now is because everyone's got their own niche. Everyone yeah. has, you know, different lending levels, different credit criteria, et cetera. So while there's many options in the market, there's an option for everybody. And yeah. we know that our, our product is not for everybody, um, but it's for a, a certain, you know, demographic and a, a certain yeah. pool of people. And that's what we're focusing on. And, and to yeah. date it's worked well. And that's what we continue to do, that transactional, piece of funding we don't offer facilities we're not a glorified bank um you know we're, we're, we're very focused on transaction by transaction who's paying us yeah. back who's the ultimate debtor etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah um, as opposed to sort of a deep dive on the business itself and try and get a, a yeah. feeling of, yeah it's, of, it's funny i've spoken to a lot of founders who are bootstrapped and they all say the same thing you know and had we have gone down the path of getting vc money they would have likely have pulled us off into different directions that we didn't feel we should head down mm. because of the pressure to actually get a return. So it's kind of it's really good to hear you say that that you know the the um, freedom that you get. Yeah, I have to say the word loosely, as in, yeah. but yeah, but of of kind of being bootstrapped and you know being being the owners of the business enables you to to go with what you know kind of intuitively you know to be the right thing to do. Correct. Correct. Look, there's definitely sort of added stress and added pressures. And like I said, you know, we've always said, Dexter, you know, this, you know, we see this this podcast and, and this conversation as being, you know, raw, no holds barred, 
and you know and the pressure and the stress that comes with sort of not having external funding is there but at yeah. the same time the upside is a lot greater because sort of 5 years ta- 5 years later when you're looking at doing some massive plays in the market you have that control and yeah. no one's di- dictating the terms to you actually quite the opposite in that we are now dictating terms yeah so you mentioned this some big news coming up but what what's the big vision for button yeah look our, our, our go-to-market strategy has always been threefold. Number one, we want the business never to leave their ecosystem to find funding again. Whatever that business is, whether it's in construction or manufacturing or wholesaling, retailing services, et cetera, et cetera, um, we want them to sort of stick to what they do. We want them to run their business and run their business well and not worry about finding finance, not worry about finding money, et cetera. That's our first thing. And that's what we've solved. We've solved the, the, the problem of the business having to waste time going outside of their business to look for funding. So am I calling my broker? Am I calling the bank? Am I trawling through internet? Am I going to online brokers, et cetera, et cetera. So we brought that internal within, within their desktop. And that's the first thing that, that we're excited where, where we want the business to go. The second part is obviously because the, the technology we've built is so revolutionary and because the technology is so agnostic, we want it to be on every desktop. And as sort of excuse the pun, as wanky as that sounds, yeah, we know that we know that's achievable because we've built it in a way that the technology can plug and play to any third party platform. And I and I keep reiterating that because that is our differentiation in the marketplace mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, the third thing we always say is that, you know, we don't need to be the biggest, we don't need to be the best, but we want to run a good business. You know, we, yeah. we always like to say, myself and my partner, we want to be able to sleep at night. You know, we, we do everything, yeah. you know, down the line, you know, we, we, we do things straight. We don't want to cut corners, you know, and I guess that's what sort of put us in good stead for the last five years that we've been able to sort of maintain our business and especially the equity structure and the capital structure, knowing that, you know, when we switch off at the end of the night, we've done everything possible to make sure that our business is in the best possible position for the following morning. Brilliant. Well, Ray, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. Really enjoyed hearing your story. And there's nothing that gets me more kind of um, psyched up than a good bootstrap story. So thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you, Dexter. Wow. Yeah. I love his approach. I love his transparency, honesty, just no holds barred. Just this is, this is what it is. This is what it's about. You don't hear that enough. And maybe that's down to the shackles. Yeah. That, you know, it, it comes with, with raise investment. It shouldn't be. Um, but you, you need to be aware of the fact that you know, you have to act as in the interests of your stakeholders. Yeah. Uh, and clearly with rail, you know, it, he can be totally transparent and honest about the situation in terms of what it's like. Um, yeah. And the trials and tribulations of not going out there and raising funds. And I actually don't think there's enough kudos to business owners, um, to entrepreneurs, to founders who choose not to go down that path. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point to make. Um, I, I just want to say, a massive congrats to to both um, him and his co-founder in terms of the perseverance to get uh, but into where it is today in that case. And 
Yeah, I, I was actually listening to um, Harry Stebbins' 20 Minute VC podcast. I think it was uh, last week or the week before. And um, he had Clay from Galileo on. And again, uh, incredible business, Galileo. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just sold to SoFi for 1.2 billion USD. You know, the guy clearly knows what he's doing. That was a bootstrap business. Yeah, yeah, and he, and he talked about it. Yeah, and he, and he talked very passionately about the choices that he had to make throughout that period. And it's it's incredibly hard, mm. right? It's incredibly hard when you're on those stages at Intersect, and there is the announcements of your peers, your direct competitors who've just got this massive raise from these well-known VCs, and there's little old you there yeah. just plugging away, getting your head down, doing your thing. And it can be hard. So I've got a huge amount of respect for that. In terms of um, you know, what they're doing, it's a way of a used analogy, but the old Wayne Grigetsky, you know, essentially skate to where the puck is going. Yeah. Now, if you look at the direction of travel right now, we've been talking about this uh, almost kind of the seamless uh, gateway that we're trying to create. Where uh, Brian... 2019 was seamless and frictionless. Oh, man. 2020 yeah. is embedded finance. Oh, wait. <laughs> hold, hold the front door. I'm literally just about to say embedded lending. Um, so, yeah, you, well, there, there is a number of different uh, trends, but embedded lending. Well, clearly, what a refreshing like, so uh, interview that it, was with Rail, word that Ryan. He's talking about right now. It's it's been it's been around for a long time but we've not necessarily looked at embedded lending or put the uh you know the the terminology around it in such a succinct way and yeah i, I think that element of cr- helping uh you know marketplaces businesses transact better um and providing better choice for customers so that they can uh you know shop and get whatever else it is at that point of sale seamlessly makes total sense and I, I think we're moving very quickly into a world where embedded lending is just seen as a must-have not a nice-to-have cool well the final segment of the show we're going to hear from Bo Batoli at Prosper and he's going to tell us a little bit about, about how they've responded to COVID and some of the measures and, and new products that they've developed um, Prosper is is uh, the first and, and one of the largest um, online small business lenders uh, we set the business up in 2012, so we actually turn eight, eight years old uh, this month, in fact. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a, a remarkable journey over the last eight years. Um, it was founded by myself and a, a co-founder, um, Greg Michelle. Uh, Greg and I have been small business owners uh, many times um, with five other businesses, uh, not between us, but that we've run. And uh, we've always um, seen the the problem of being a small business owner and accessing capital. And it was a huge problem back in in 2012. It's actually probably a bigger problem now in in 2020 with everything that the world is Mm. going through. Um, And we wanted to do something about it. We wanted to change the way that small businesses were able to access different products. Um, We built a a business that was was really founded in the cloud and um, seems really obvious in 2020 to do that. In 2012, it wasn't so obvious, but... Uh, we made that decision to be a digital and, and cloud-led business. Um, and then we went out there and, and tried to find and support as many small business owners as we could in, in Australia. We now have a business that operates um, across Australia and New Zealand. Um, <clears throat> we have over 25,000 small business customers in pretty much every industry and, and geographical region um, in Australia and New Zealand. And when we look at the the size you know, of this, this market, there are over 2.5 million small business owners across uh, both of those markets. And if you ask them, you know, what are your, your top uh, challenges or the top things on your mind, 
Um, access to capital is usually within the top three for most business owners. Yeah. So it's a really big problem, something we've been working really hard over the last year, eight years to try and solve, um, and something we feel like we're still in the very early days of of getting into. Well, as you mentioned earlier, we've got a big crisis, and it now seems more important than ever that we've got companies like Prosper supporting small businesses. What's been your response to to COVID and how are you getting out there to support some of these smaller businesses? So we have a very unique perspective on what's happening with with the COVID crisis. Um, We have exposure across, as I mentioned, most industries and and geographical um, areas. And um, we typically have loans and, and line of credit products that go um, although they go up to to three hundred thousand dollars, they usually average out around thirty thousand dollars. So we really are lending into the the small um, uh, size of businesses, mm. and um, certainly they've been been very hit. Depending on the industry that they are in, um, not all industries have have taken a, a knock. There are certainly some industries that have um, found ways to to potentially even benefit through the crisis and and um, continue to grow their businesses. But a lot of business owners have certainly um, taken a, a big knock from um, the, the lockdown, the crisis. In our business, um, there's a, a number of things that we've been able to do to try to support the Australian and New Zealand small businesses. Um, the first and at the start of the crisis, what we think of really as phase one was to provide relief to small business owners that we'd already lent money to and work with them to try and help their business through this, this devastating period. Um, so we put in place a scheme of works where we provided things like deferrals, things like um, you know, reduce their payments, um, even provide additional capital if, if that was appropriate as well to actually help them get through yeah. um, this period. And yeah, we've got to remember most small business owners, um, certainly in industries like hospitality, retail, a lot of professional services, they actually had to close their businesses. They weren't able to trade yeah. or if they were trading, it was at a very, very reduced level of revenue. Um, so we were able to support um, in that regard. And I think we end up with over five and a half thousand small business owners um, where we provided some level of, of relief to and something we're really proud to have, have played our part Fantastic. Um, in supporting them. Um, then in the sort of the, the second phase, as um, the first round of lockdowns sort of came to an end and um, and restrictions were reduced, small business owners were very keen to reopen, try to get their trade um, back up. And when you're reopening and rebooting a business, um, that is very time consuming. It's obviously um, resource consumptive as well. And a lot of business owners had put off things like purchasing, things like um, hiring. In many cases, they had to let roles go. Mm. Um, and when you're actually rebooting your business, often you need to rehire those roles. You yeah. need to restock your business. You need to replace equipment that was, it was due for replacement in Jan or February, but you didn't make that decision until now. So um, we've now been supporting um, the small business economy with um, increased lending and access to capital. Um, we've been working with the Australian federal government through um, providing um, access to the, the loan guarantee scheme products, yeah. uh, which we very quickly in the space of about three weeks built two products um, that allow small business owners to access the capital they need now at a lower rate and not make any payments if they choose to for six months. So it really helps them get the cash yeah. flow into their business now. So um, the, the UK fintech industry could learn a thing or two from the Aussies. And eh? yeah. It's been a very different story from what I hear in the, the UK as to how they've, you know, the challenges that they've faced in getting funding out to smaller businesses. Yeah, what's and it's, and it's what's some of the lessons that you've you've kind of learned from from this bit? Um, I mean, there's a, a number of lessons on um, on the business front and on the, the small business um, product front that we we do. So um, happy to talk to the, the small business front and also the business front as well. Um, certainly from the, the small business owner front, um, the the nature of the small business economy is that it's very disparate. As I mentioned, yeah. there's two and a half million just in Australia, New Zealand. 
Um, in the UK, for example, I think there's, you know, pushing up towards 8 million. In America, mm. there's over 30 million. So they are everywhere. You know, walk down to your local community and you'll see hundreds of small business owners, you know, right there in, in your local community. So reaching them and, and finding, you know, those small business owners is a real challenge. And that was where the, the government, we think, made some really great decisions in terms of partnering with a lot of different players and platforms, not just the big banks, but yeah. a lot of the, the non-banks and the, the fintech community like Prosper, um, in order to actually find and reach these small business owners with capital products. Um, so, you know, moving quickly and moving early and having a real open mind to um, how we actually support our customers, that's been a, a really big lesson. Um, and I think from a, a small business economy front, um, you know, they're not through it yet. The, yeah. um, the you know, certain industries have recovered and or certainly on the, the way to recovery. But there's a lot of industries that are, are still, you know, in the doldrums. And, and for some industries, you know, there's a lot of pain yet to come. So we're, we're still uh, monitoring this really closely, um, working with government, working with our funders, um, constantly looking at ways we can either create an enhanced experience, um, whether that's through what we can do on a deferral front or whether it's through a capital front um, or building and launching a new product. I think on the, the business front, on the you know, Prosper and, and what have we learned you know, going through this crisis, um, I mentioned you know, we've obviously got a very unique perspective um, on it. We also have exposure to one of the parts of the economy that has been quite badly um, hit by this, this crisis. Um, I think one of the pleasing things um, for us, and this is a, a value of ours, one of our values is customer obsession and really think about what the customer's going through. Um, from day one in the crisis, we took the customer lens and said, we're going to do the right thing by our customer here. And when we look now four, five months after sort of the, the depths of the crisis, um, we're seeing a really great recovery rate from customers and we're seeing many of them reopen and have a, a real um, positive attitude towards an optimism almost towards getting their businesses going again. Uh, notwithstanding Victoria, who's taken a, yeah. obviously a second hit, but um, a lot of the, the rest of the country is really trying to get back on their feet. So doing the right thing by our customer has actually been a great benefit to us um, here now several months later where customers are still raving about our brand, raving about right. the experience. We didn't you know, apply any pressure during that period. We actually worked um, really closely with our customers. So that first principle of um, you know, always doing the right thing by your customer, being empathetic to their experience um, and within reason doing whatever you can to support them um, will always pay, pay off. Um, you know, the second thing that we um, we learnt, and um, you know, we were very fortunate to have a, a team and a, a culture within our business, um, where not only had we we always been a team that could work remotely, so going full um, remote was not a, a real leap for us as a, a team. Um, we've also had a team um, culture that we've nurtured over many years, and um, I think in in crises, you know, particularly deep crises like this. It's where culture you know, trumps kind of everything. You can see um, it play out every day in, in a good way or in a bad way, depending on how you've nurtured that culture. Um, we had a, a team who basically dropped everything they were doing to work with our customers. And there were days there where we had you know, hundreds of customers calling in, yeah. seeking help and, and support. And um, you know, we had a very small customer service team. Um, I think it was about eight people in that team. And they were obviously overwhelmed with you know, such a large um, influx. So we had teammates you know, from from marketing, from you know, engineering, from mm. teams all around the business, just jumping in and supporting. And that really came from that, that core culture. Um, I think the, the third big lesson out of, out of this crisis um, has been, and this is more of a business owner kind of yeah. lens, um, has been don't, don't be afraid to make the tough decisions early. And we had to make some really big calls mm. in our business. Um, you know, some, some really difficult calls. You know, we had a number of roles 
um, which we had to make redundant in the business. Um, it was uh, about, I think, 16% of the roles. And that was a really tough choice yeah. for us to, to make. Um, you know, you don't want to see anyone you know, in your business, obviously, um, not in your business, but that was a decision we had to make. And um, as a business owner and um, and leader, you know, there are always going to be these confronting moments. Mm. Um, you often can't predict them. And sometimes they're actually outside of your control. And that was one of these moments for us. Um, but doing the right thing by your people, moving um, quickly and empathetically, um, if that ever happens. Um, and then, you know, with the, the tough decisions, we also made a, a decision which was um, you know, to really try to to think about the risk we were taking and be very careful about that risk we were taking. Yeah. Another really tough decision to make under under extraordinary pressure, uh, but again, the the right decision mm. in retrospect. So, um, you know, not being afraid to to move quickly and to to make those tough calls. Um, and then finally, I think the the you know, biggest lesson, and, and I still firmly believe this is playing out right now. You know, all crises end, and you know, this has been a, a different crisis to say the global financial crisis, where it was a financial system crisis. This is a health crisis, and um, there's obviously some some terrible statistics that we're seeing in relation to the the way that that's playing out. Um, that health crisis has led to an economic crisis, and yeah, you know, we are still very much in the the depths of that crisis. And um, you know, unemployment is increasing, business failure rates are increasing. Um, obviously, number of, of cases of COVID and even in Australia is increasing. So we're actually not through the worst of potentially things like the health um, part of this crisis. Um, but crisis do end. Mm. And I think as a business owner and leader, um, it's incumbent upon us to, to find where is the future, where is the hope, um, you know, paint a, a vision and a, a picture of the future you know, that is hopefully going to be different and yeah. better than the one we're in today. And I think, again, as leaders, we can't predict exactly when that moment will will happen, but we do know that the crisis come to an end um, and positioning the team, positioning the company, the products, et cetera, for that moment is very, very important. And at Prosper, we're doing that right now, making sure that the business, the team, the products, the go-to-market strategy, all of it is ready for for the recovering, which um, is hopefully um, not small businesses. You know, and it's cliche to say, but it's very true. They are the engine room of the economy. They, and this is why the government is so focused on mm. them right now, because they employ two thirds of all Australian and New Zealand's um, population. Um, they account for a, a very large percentage of GDP. And when they're going well, the, the whole economy goes well. Yeah. When they're under pressure, the whole economy struggles. So um, they're such an important part of the um, of the economy and cash flow, working capital. Mm. Um, I mentioned earlier, you know, it's often in the top three issues on a, on a business owner's mind. Um, and we wanted to solve that that problem. So it was great to hear from Bo there. Um, before we wrap up, Ryan, I want to kind of cover just one other topic that we haven't covered, um, and that's the the kind of area of of cards. So we've seen Brex in the US. Yep. Um, we're going to see here on Oz. Uh, we've got Perpera, who are just now currently doing a raise through Equitize. Mm-hmm. We've got Archer who have pivoted from going down the track of being a neobank to now being a business card and lender. And we've also got our friend Ben Fistra from you know, X Square who's setting up Zella. So kind of we've gone from having nothing to all of a sudden in Australia, we're going to have a number of players in the space. And read a really interesting piece of research by a good friend, Duncan Curry at Stage 3, who if you don't, um, look at their market teardowns and you're in you're in fintech you're really missing a trick here he gives a really in-depth analysis of brex and their approach to growth what you had a look at that ryan what are you what are your thoughts it's a brilliant piece of research from duncan and very thorough you know very clear in terms of 
deep diving into the go-to-market strategy, the product proposition. Um, I think I think just to um, chime in in terms of your point there, it is a very very exciting time <laughs> to be in Australia. It it feels like we're we're just we're just at, we, we're starting to get to the well we're getting to the starting gates. And there is a number of players moving in here. Now, the, the market in the UK, you know, it is, uh, it's competitive. It's, it's definitely mature. Uh, whereas actually in terms of Australia now, we're at this new beginning. There are incumbents, um, such as you mentioned before, in terms of uh, Prosper. Um, there's obviously uh, Moolah. There's others yeah. that are here. But there is a new opportunity. And I think if you look globally, you know, where... For me, taking the time out to really try and research and understand the market, where the opportunity is, not just in Australia, but across the APAC region, you know, it's it's looking at this first entry point in terms of working capital. And um, you know, my perspective here, you know, built up funded options, which was that one-stop shop uh, for all types of business finance. Now, the one area that we always struggled on, um, even with all those different players, were small businesses, founders, you know, coming in first time round, you know, their credit worthiness at that point is unfortunately zilch, nada, nothing. Yeah. And they got to get in and build up their credit profile unless they want to put security such as the house, obviously on the line. Yeah. And it's, I think what we're going to start seeing, we're going to start seeing players come in and actually help small businesses build up their credit worthiness and profile over time. Now, there are propositions which are more dynamically natured. And if you look at the likes of these revolving credit facilities, small business overdrafts, you know, th- th- there's a number of different kind of terms you could use for them, business credit cards. You know, they start off with a small facility initially. There, there's an opportunity for you to actually assess the credit worthiness of the business owner over time. And for that actual line of credit to grow as you get as you can glean more insights as to their actual performance and that ability to go and grow with them and support them, you know, it plays a really important role as they're going through that growth journey. And I think if you look at Brex in particular, that's, you know, they're going after the typically more VC backed businesses, which we don't have as many over here in Australia. Um, But I think if you look at the, there is a, you know, on the old Venn diagram, you know, where you have got uh, Brex, you've got Ramp, which I think is a, fantastic solution uh, and then in in the uk cap on tap which i think is a you know is really leading the way and mm. and doesn't get enough free attention for what they're actually doing and what they've actually achieved because well over a hundred thousand customers now have got actually a cap on tap card and for me looking at this market there is a need to bring these things together yeah now the question as we've we've looked through all these different solutions you know comes down to what is the thing that is going to help small business owners get through this crisis mm. and get through this tough time. And ultimately, you know, we've got the opportunity of open banking, CDR, uh, come through. And it's an amazing chance to build new products on this brand new data to help those needing to make it through and survive this mm. and really to build uh, build a bridge to recovery. And, you know, I'd say that that's something I'm, I'm definitely paying close attention to, which is like, how can we help those business owners right now, you know, go from where they are in 2020, 2021 to where they need to be in 23, 25. And that, you know, looking at what we're talking about today, you know, I think these solutions that we're talking about can help get them there.
Brilliant. Well, Ryan, thanks for all your input today. If people want to get in touch with you, where's the best place for them to go? Just hit me up on LinkedIn. Always happy to chat to new people. Uh, otherwise, you can find me on Twitter. I'm not as active as I've been pretty busy of late. Um, so I'd probably say, yeah, get me on there and more than happy to talk. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. No worries. Thanks for having me. That wraps up the show. You can find me at Dexter Cousins on Twitter and Dexter Cousins on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. And if you like today's show, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. This show is produced by Tier 1 People. We're leaders in fintech executive search. We'll help you launch, scale, and innovate by delivering the right people. And you can reach us at info at tier1people.com.